Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal series, wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! Exclamation point, The Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, The Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, The Wise Woman Way, down there, sexual and reproductive health, the wise woman way. And abundantly well, seven medicines, the wise woman way. The newest book in the wise woman herbal series. So exciting. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public. On appointment-only basis, she offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at thewisewomanschool.com. Join us there for colorful, instructive, easy video courses, including Easy Herbal Medicine with Susan Weed, Happy Knees, a Cancer Diagnosis, Adaptogens for Long Life, and Abundantly Well Companion Course, Wise Woman You can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Hello, everyone. This is Rebecca. Um, I'm not seeing Susan's number in here, but I do see one eight four five number. Is this you, Susan? I guess not. Let's see. Hmm. 
All right. Well, we'll wait a moment and then try, maybe we'll just try her cell phone right now and get that over with. I don't believe she is at home. Sorry, everyone. Bear with me here. <clears throat> I'm sorry, but the person you called has a voice mailbox that has not been set up yet. Whoops. Goodbye. All right. Well, let's see if she calls in here. Let me try another one of these. Susan, is this you? Hello? No. Um, and... Not Susan. Maybe this one. Would this happen to be you, Susan? No. All right. Well, we will wait a moment. And um, tonight we have Reverend Ann Zapp, and she is the founder of the Peyote Way Church um, of God in Southeast Arizona, located in the Aravapa Valley, and she has spent the last 40 years advocating and promoting religious tolerance, as well as encouraging members to make ecologically and enlightened lifestyle choices. She teaches and advises various organizations and individuals in the United States, Europe, and Asia. Um, she was born and raised in Philadelphia to a prominent prominent musical family, and she's also an accomplished singer, which is awesome when you are in ceremony to have somebody that can sing. Um, she attended Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado, and received her BS degree in zoology. She and her husband, Matthew Kent, have three growing children, and they tra trained with master potter Emmanuel Mana Trujillo, who created the nationally acclaimed Mana Pottery, which Susan has spoke about. Um, and I believe she owns a piece of that pottery. And uh, yeah, I was just thinking, because I had come across a picture of some peyote this week that was in flower, and I was like, wow, it just looks so feminine. And every time I talk to somebody, they say, that have been in peyote ceremonies, it seems like everybody I've talked to that has say it's such a masculine presence. But when I saw this picture, the first thing I thought of was such a feminine presence. And I wonder if it has more to do with the person administering the medicine. So I'm curious if what Ann Zapp has to say about that, because I also know with like ayahuasca, people that have done ayahuasca um, with certain curanduras, curanduros, um, that they, depending on who's administrating the medicine, is how the spirit comes through. And um, having done some ayahuasca ceremonies myself, and Susan is still not here, but having done some ayahuasca ceremonies myself and now kind of uh, transitioning into more of a mushroom um, is my entheogen of a choice. And... Um, that uh, I have seen my friends that are ayahuascaros and how the medicine comes through them. And it's really interesting um, if they believe in like it as their mother and have that relationship with the medicine. 
then that's how it presents itself to them. And I can, I actually saw my friend as a baby in the womb sack of the ayahuasca plant and she calls it the mother. And so, yeah, I'm just curious about like how these spirits come through for different people. And um, it's such spirit medicine and that realm is so kind of mysterious and um, waiting to be explored. So I'm so happy Ann Zapp is going to be on the radio with us tonight. And um, let's see if we can get a hold of Susan. I'm going to call one more phone number here. And then I'm going to message Justine because I know she is on the Internet right now. And when I put in David, my girl's group away. You just got the answering machine for the Wiseman Center, Ashley Publishing, and Susan Weed. So wait for the beep and leave a message or push start and send a fax. Singing goody, 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 go. Hello, this is Rebecca. We are on Blog Talk Radio Live right now, waiting for Susan's presence. And I'm checking in to see if she is at home. And I don't believe that she is, but we are going to keep searching for her for a moment. And then, yes, let's see. <laughs> All right. Well, let's hang up the phone there, Susan. And See if Justine messaged me back here. Excuse me, everyone, while I do a little research here. Oh, my goodness. I'm so sorry, everyone. I am just not sure what is going on. Here, Justine's messaging me right now, so let's just wait for a moment so I can figure out what's going on. Try calling her cell one more time, I guess. I'm sorry, but the person you called has a voice mailbox that has not been set up yet. Cell phone must not be working. Thank you for your patience, everyone, while we get this sorted out.
Well, wonder what I should do here. Let's see. Okay, Justine is going to work on some communication for us. Um, I wish I had a backup plan for everyone, but um, we will hold tight here and see if Susan's able to come through tonight. <clears throat> What else? Mm -hmm. What do we have going on? Next week. And so I'll, I'll let you all know about next week's guests since we're, we are just sitting here because um, it's an interesting guest on the 19th. Uh, Galexis is a group of multidimensional non-physical beings who speak as one through the trance channel Ginger Chalford Matrox, Ph.D. They first came through Ginger in 1988 and went public in 1994, activating their mission through private sessions and public seminars. Since then, they illuminated and supported people in their personal evolution so that they could take advantage of the great consciousness shift that was kicked off in 2012, and that came to a pivotal evolutionary point in 2018. Their mission has been to use new consciousness energies coming in from the light future to teach people how to craft and manifest their own personal new life in their own new world on a template of love and empowerment, freedom and trust of reliance upon their spiritual team. But there's more. There is a greater mission for us all <clears throat> that Galexis is helping us with, and that includes dreaming this new world for everyone, thus participating in the world's evolution as well. The goal is the Aquarian Age principle of the individual remaining distinct and luminous, sharing radiance into the collective and belonging in the oneness of all beings. About the channel, Ginger Matrix, Ph.D., Ginger has been an astrologer, life coach, writer, and nutritionalist, nutritionist before becoming a trans channel. Currently channeling Galexis has enabled her to be trained by a group of medical intu intuition. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband, Daniel the Healer. Wow. Yes, 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 yes. So many galactic individuals uh, coming through to communicate these days as it is. Right, still no word there. Be interested to hear what Susan thinks about that. I wonder if she believes in those multidimensional beings. I know she doesn't believe in uh, extraterrestrial life visiting Earth, as said previously, but um, from my experience, that uh, I do believe. So I'd be curious to hear Susan's opinion on that. Of course, always interesting. Even if we don't agree with her, we can always uh, think deeper about issues that she brings up, even though not always, um, I don't always agree with everything that she says, of course. No, I do not see her number in the list of callers. We will look one more time. Mm 
All right, just messaging here with Justine to see if we can locate Susan and what the heck I should do about this. Let's see. Hello, somebody just called in here. Would this happen to be Susan? No, it's not Susan. Okay, just checking. <laughs> hmm. All right, well. All right, well, let's see. There are some recordings here, and I might just play one of those until we can get Susan on the line here. She's uh, Justine's trying to get through to her right now. And um, let's see what would be interesting for you all. We haven't had to play one of these before, actually. So let's see. Oh, mm. <laughs> Um, oh, they're mostly goddess chants, but here is one, and let's listen to this one. Feel most sexy when? Oh, wait, oh, you're asking a question. I'm asking a question. When do most women feel most sexy? After a shower. <laughs> when they are ovulating. Oh, okay. All right. Why would you feel most interested when you're ovulating. Mating time. Even if you don't want to have a baby, it's still mating time. All right? What are you not doing anymore? So your cue is gone. Oh, wait. It's in a hole somewhere. No, no. Oh, that. It's not. That's not. Your cue is. Your ovulation is not cueing you in anymore. Okay, so step one in regaining your sexual interest is seven orgasms a week, whether you want them or not. One a day, seven on Sunday, however you want to do it. But seven orgasms a week, if you get too tired, get a vibrator. Right? No, I remember the first vibrator that came to Woodstock, Woodstock Women's Center, and Betty Dodson and helpers arrived to give a workshop on self-loving. And Sheila, <coughs> Betty's helper, took off her clothes, lay down on the floor, said, where's a plug? <laughs> Looked around and said, does somebody have a watch with a second hand? All right. Just tie me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 58 seconds. <laughs> 58 seconds. You could have seven in one day. As a matter of fact, she said, okay, now for the second one. Time me again. 16 seconds. You can have 20 in one day. That's right. Women who use vibrators have more sexual interest stronger orgasms, and better relationships with others. Right. Contrary to some myths circulating, that you will only love your vibrator and never love human beings again. <laughs> 
come on, vibrators can't tell you how sexy you look. <laughs> or give you little shoulder massages. You know, what? You know. I also recall the words of a woman in Southern California. And she said, after menopause, you know, down there, she said it was like a desert. So I was like, think sand dunes and camels, and who wants to go there? I was just not interested. She said, then I read about oat straw infusion. I started drinking oat straw infusion. She said, wow, I've got an oasis now. Think dancing girls and date palms. Oats are aphrodisiac. Oats are aphrodisiac. And so oat straw infusion, along with your seven orgasms a week. And dust off those tools, right? Because your body has changed. And not only is your cue gone, but the ways that you used to come in have changed. It's really different. And so self-exploration will help you discover where those differences are so that you can then help those who want to be sexy with you to know where the pleasure is and in the wise, wise words of one of my teachers, nothing has to happen. Hmm? Say, hey, let's be sexy together. No particular thing has to happen. His orgasm is not the goal of sex anymore. And your orgasm is not necessarily the goal either. The goal is intimacy, sharing. And if that goes along with, oh, I really want you, good. But if that, oh, I really want you, only lasts for five minutes and then you fall asleep, it's okay. Because each one of those brings you closer into it. Basically what I did, since I did not choose to, like, move out, or have my partner move out, I said... It's entirely and completely on my terms when I ask for it, and you're never even to raise an eyebrow of desire. And I don't, and right now, I'm not feeling like it, and I don't know when it will come back, but it will. Just hang with me through this. And we found lots of ways to be intimate with each other that most people wouldn't define as sex. Because that's what we wanted, was an intimate relationship, and to feel that we were desirable to each other, right? And we learned to praise each other a lot more. I mean, I I was really thrilled that I had somebody right there when I took off my clothes. Every night, I'd look in the mirror and go, disgusting, oh God, I can't believe it. And he'd go, God, you look so sexy. Okay, who am I going to believe, me or him? Him. Why not? <laughs> yeah. 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 It's Kundalini's there all the time for them. Just tell him I love you very, very much, and I'm happy to hold your hand while you masturbate. Really? Yeah. And you say, I'm a menopausal woman and sex is spelled differently. It could be for a while. Are you drinking out strong doing seven orgasms a week? No. <laughs> 
check back in after you do this RX and see where you're at. And let him know too. Say, hey, you're right. I'm really not interested. Because we, we are more intimate with each other when we're honest. And it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with me. Right? I love you. I want to be intimate with you. Let's find ways that we can really share together and give me some time on my own to rediscover my sexuality. You know, I, we were all laughing when I was raising my hand and saying, you know, at puberty something happens to little boys. But the fact of the matter is something does happen to little boys and there is not a man anywhere that I have ever met that did not learn on his own how to have an orgasm. It's just as obvious as you don't watch to them. 30% of women 25 and older do not yet know how to have an orgasm. We have to be taught or to figure it out on our own. And it can take a long time to figure it out on our own. Which is why hopefully I'm giving you a few hints. Because not only do we have to figure this out at puberty, we've got to figure it out again at menopause. It's like, well, darn, I thought I had it all figured out. Nope. Now you get to figure it out again. But if you figured it out once, I guarantee you can figure it out again. And if you haven't figured it out yet, well, hey, then it's just the first time for figuring it out, right? And down there has a lot of great ideas about how to figure it out, no matter what your age. Your book down there. My book, yeah. down there. Yeah. And, and energy follows awareness. You just think about your genitals. Mm-hmm. Just think about it. Yeah. Because the more aware you are of your genitals, the more energy will flow there. Did anybody read this interesting experiment? They took men, heterosexual men and homosexual men, and they showed them erotica, pornography, whatever you want to call it. Um, And the heterosexual men, their brains lit up when they saw heterosexual sex. And when they saw women and women having sex. And when they saw men and men having sex, nothing happened in their brains. And when they were asked... What turned them on? They reported the heterosexual sex and the lesbian sex, but not the homosexual sex. The homosexual men's brains lit up when they saw the men having sex. Weren't particularly interested in the girls and nothing with the heterosexual stuff. And when asked, they said, that was nothing, but I liked the man-on-man stuff, right? So they accurately reported what was going on in their brains. They then took, again, heterosexual women and lesbian women and showed them the same erotica, the same pornography, and the heterosexual women's brains lit up with heterosexual sex, lit up with lesbian sex, lit up with men and men. When asked to report what turned them on, they said nothing. (laughs) The lesbians at least reported that the lesbian sex turned them on. But again, their brains are bong, 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 for all of it. So it's not just consciousness, it's willingness to be conscious of arousal. Because women seem to have a unique ability to not know that we're aroused. To not, literally not know that our brain is going, (laughs) come on. You know, we're like, no, I don't feel a thing. And your brain is going, hello, down there, are you getting the signals? 
Uh, or as one woman said, could you please take sex and take it out of my brain and put it between my legs or it belongs? <laughs> but it's got to start in your brain. So you get to start recognizing the signals that are coming from your brain. One last question. I think we're about done with time. Would you say a vibrator is more important than just your own hands? It's up to you. I wish I had a copy down there with me because I'd read the vibrator thing there. But I'll, do you have a copy? Oh, it's, this, is such, this is such fun. I just love this. When I did research into vibrators, I'm like, oh, I can hardly believe this. This is so glorious. I'm looking it up here. It's in, it's in clitoris. We've got to get past vagina. Okay, here we go, clitoris. And vibrator. Vibrators began life as a cure for hysteria. <laughs> or moving womb. A disease prevalent among women with pent-up sexual energy. By the late 1800s, it was estimated that three-quarters of American women were hysterical. <laughs> this medical literature I'm quoting here. The cure, an orgasm, known by the prim medical term paroxysm. A prescription that actually dates back to medical texts from the first century. Manual simulation of the female patient to paroxysm was the cure, but it was, and again I quote from medical sources, tedious and time consuming. <laughs> oh, we have all been there, haven't we? <laughs> 59 seconds. Hmm. Right. Enter the vibrator. By the beginning of the 20th century, health spas offering vibration therapy had sprung up like multiple orgasms. Soon, home treatment models were introduced. The vibrator became the fifth electric appliance following the sewing machine the fan, the tea kettle, and the toaster <laughs> to become a household necessity. Hysteria was dropped from the American Psychiatric Association's list of recognized disorders in 1952. But vibrators continue to be available. <laughs> Women who use vibrators experience more positive sensual function in terms of desire, arousal, lubrication, and orgasm. Vibrator users are more likely to have good health in their genitals and to have looked closely at their genitals. So there you have the case for the fifth electric appliance to become a household necessity. <laughs> Thank you all so much. Right. I'm looking for the t-shirt that says seven a week. Can I sign your book for you? I would you? love it if you would sign my book for you. Uh, okay. Okay.
And don't do the batteries. They don't last. No, no. Plug in. Plug in. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to have battery failure at the wrong moment. <laughs> Thanks, Linda. Thank you. I love the way your mind works. The connections you make. You're so welcome. Jennifer. You're so welcome. Oh, yeah. Susan's not here yet, but um, so good to hear her laughing, and I hope that she's doing good, and may we all just think uh, some good loving thoughts towards Susan, and um, we will play, there's another edited show on here from 2013, and so that was quite a while ago, that's when I started working for them, but I think that was in 2013, so maybe this was when Justine was still doing the show. So it'll be interesting to see what's on here, and I'm just going to play this until hopefully um, we'll get Susan on here at some point, and um, she'll be able to interview the guests. But if not, maybe um, I'll stand in and ask her the questions that she wrote into us. And um, yeah, here we go. So this is an edited show from August 13th, 2013. And let's see what Susan was talking about back then. And hopefully um, y'all will get, there's three people with their hands raised right now. And hopefully um, Susan will get here and I'll just stop it at any point that she might show up. So thank you all for holding on with us. And um, we are still going to try to get a hold of her. So here is the show. Love Talk Radio. Green woman, spirit of the past has come. 
of both the joy and the grief. So holism says and holistic healing says when we put our pieces back together again, we might very well have a cure for our problems. We might very well get better. But at the very, very least, we will get more defined. We will be more of who we are. And my experience is that for the most part, what people need to reclaim and what people need to bring back and take care of, this answer might surprise you, is not those serene and easygoing parts of themselves, but the anguished part of themselves, the upset part of themselves, the enraged part of themselves, these, we might call them difficult emotions, sometimes seem so difficult that it seems easier just to stuff them and just to hide them in a closet corner or under the rug or some place, back of the freezer, yes, indeed, where we don't have to see them or deal with them. And yet, because they are hidden aspects of ourselves and our wholeness, then without them we can't be full, we can't have the joy and the health that we want from our life. So when you come here on Tuesday evenings to listen to me to ask questions or to write those questions in by email, know that the answers are going to be broad and wide and deep and like a hologram they are going to go around all of the edges like a gestalt image you will find me often pointing out that what you thought was a wine glass is really two profiles or perhaps what you thought was two profiles is really a wine glass and although you can know there are two different images there you can't see them both at once so Ah. Being That's able to good. see the those different aspects, it's not even different sides because they're not opposing, just different aspects, is part of becoming more whole, the wise woman way. Hi, Justine. Hi, Susan. It is raining here. Is it raining there? It is not yet raining. The leaves well, it will sh- be in about five minutes because yep. the storm blew in here. And slammed a bunch of doors in the house in the process. Anyhow, oh, I uh, see that there's somebody here who's been waiting for a little while to ask a question. Is it okay if I open the line now? Absolutely. Go right ahead. Thank you. Hello, the person in the 812 area code. Would you like to talk to Susan this evening? I would. Well, go right ahead. Okay. Hi. My name is Andrea. And take it off speakerphone now. Um, and I have a girl daughter who has struggled with her um, lungs every winter since her birth. And it seems like the cold and that's where it sits. And she's had a couple winters where she's basically gotten a, a cough in early winter and has kept that cough pretty much till spring. Last year, I started a tea with her, actually I made it more like an infusion, um, and gave it to her in smallish doses. And I'm happy to do that again, but in finding Susan and her work, I think maybe a more simplistic infusion would work for her better, perhaps. Um, I did read 
her article on lung um, nutrients and mullion and some of those kinds of things, and I'm wondering if that's the best recommendation for someone her size. And if so, um, especially with mullion, is it too late in the year to pick it? Uh, mullion is a wonderful choice. And mullen is perfectly safe to use with anyone of any age, from a premature infant to a 120-year-old woman. Okay. And, of course, everyone in between. The, as you, excuse me, may know, we just finished the Green Goddess Apprentice Week. Yes. And one of the things that we did was that we drank a different infusion each day. And on the next to the last night, we went in the kitchen and we made what I call the other infusions. You know, I have my five favorite infusions, nettle, oat straw, red clover, comfrey leaf, and linden. And some of those would also be just wonderful for your daughter. Mm-hmm. And and we had done those, you know, we had had spent a day drinking each one of those and talking about that plant and talking about how to harvest it and going out in the field and looking at it. Uh, but then, you know, we made like, oh, seven or eight different infusions. We made a hibiscus infusion. We made a burdock root infusion. We made a hawthorn flower and berry infusion. And I said, and we must make mullen infusion, but we're going to make twice as much mullen infusion as others. And they said, why? I said, see, the way that we want to use that mullen in, once it's steeped overnight, we measured out an ounce of mullen per quart, so that was two ounces of mullen in our half-gallon jar, filled it at the top of the boiling water, put a tight lid on it, and let it steep overnight. And then the next morning, we strained that out through a cloth. I used to grab my mom's stained linen napkins used as my cloth strainer for the mullen. Um, whatever it is, just be aware the mullen has some tannins, and it will stain that cloth, so don't use something that's rare or precious to you. And then we mix it about half and half with milk and add honey to taste. And that's called mullen milk. And I said to them later on, I said, so which of the different infusions did you like the best? And they said, and they said, as one mullen milk, mullen milk is so great. I want to have that all the time. Children especially love mullen milk. So are you clear about how to make it? I am. Um, what would be the recommended dose then? As much as she'll well, drink? Well, if if I said to you, what's the recommended dose of carrots, what would you say to me? <laughs> as much as she'll eat. Correct. These are foods. Okay. They're not drugs. Right. Usually we okay. take a dose of drugs, right? But this is if food. So, yes, certainly as much as she wants. Now, of the herbs that I drink on a regular basis, let's talk about their effect on the lungs. One of the first, of course, that comes to mind is linden, and that's linden flower. And linden flower is used worldwide to heal the respiratory system. It's a very powerful anti-inflammatory. It can really help to um, heal the tiny tissues in the lungs. And again, like the mullein, it's considered safe for anyone of any age. I use half an ounce of linden flowers for my quart of water 
as opposed to all the other herbs where I use a full ounce of dried herb for a quart of boiling water. But in all instances, I do brew it overnight or at least four hours. So, Linden, I think that both you and your daughter will like the Linden a lot. I was just uh, visiting with my daughter and granddaughter, and we were all drinking Linden. And we were drinking it cold, which is a great way to have it, but you can also heat it up and have a little honey with it. Wonderful. Honey, honey, of course, is very soothing and healing to the chest. If I get a cough and I need to be on and speaking with people, I just take a spoonful of honey neat and keep try to keep it in my mouth for as long as I can, while it, of course, slowly dissolves and slowly seeps down my throat. Mm-hmm. So adding yeah, a little I... honey to your mullen or your linden is absolutely fine. Okay. If she does get a um, a cold, would you recommend using echinacea with her? Or in clomping? I never know how to say that one. Echinacea is definitely a way to say it. It's a perfectly fine way to say it. Here's what I believe and what science teaches me the part of the immune system that knows how to deal with viruses must learn how to deal with viruses. It doesn't actually know to begin with. The part of the immune system that deals with bacteria actually comes, you know, prepackaged. It knows how to deal with bacteria. So what happens when we're young, if we're healthy, is that we should get a cold, oh, every three or four weeks. Mm -hmm. Because there are dozens of different rhinoviruses. And that immature immune system must come into contact with all of those different colds, experience them, and be able to build a library of antibodies. So yeah. you could give her echinacea, but, but it's almost as though you're, you're telling her that there's something wrong. If she's running a fever with the cold, the echinacea will help bring down that fever. And that would be a wonderful okay. thing to use. But does the echinacea itself directly affect a virus? Not that I know of. It's an antibacterial, not an antiviral. Okay. There there has been a study in Switzerland by Vogel with their echinacea tincture in which they found that people who took echinacea on a daily basis throughout the winter months did have fewer colds, and those colds were less severe. However, that was with an adult population who we could probably assume already had antibodies to the colds. We all know that children get colds and get sick more frequently. This is part of their learning curve, part of what's going on for them. So Linden is the world's leading cold preventative and flu preventative herb and the world's leading cold and flu treatment herb as well. So having Linden as an on-hand beverage you know, make mm-hmm. up a quart or two of linden infusion and store it in the refrigerator. Linden, because it's very low in protein, will store in the refrigerator for four or five days. And if you're thirsty or your daughter is thirsty, have some linden. Wonderful thing to drink. Another one of the herbs that I drink on a regular basis that's wonderful for the lungs is comfrey leaf. Mm-hmm. And comfrey okay. leaf is actually known as such a strong healer for the lungs that there are stories about it getting rid of lung cancer. Huh. Comfrey, 
Humphrey does something a little different than what Mullen does. Basically, what Mullen does is Mullen goes to the lungs and it says, this is how you're supposed to be functioning. Follow me, watch me, repeat after me, do as I do. So Mullen, I say, brings back the original message of functioning to the lungs. What Humphrey does is it kind of gets all those cells exercised. It's a tonic. It goes in there and it says, touch your toes again, 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 jump up again, again, again. Let's everybody get going. Let's everybody get exercised. Let's everybody get in tone. So not only does the mullen go in and say, this is how you're supposed to do it, but the comfrey then comes and makes everything better able to do it. Excellent. Yeah. I make comfrey the same way. One ounce of dried comfrey leaf in a quart jar, fill it to the top of the boiling water, put a tight lid on it, let it see for four hours or overnight, strain it out. Now, both the comfrey and the linden contain mucilage, which is an mm-hmm. odd term, because when I was a little girl in school, mucilage was the glue that you stuck things down with. But what herbalists mean by mucilage is not sticky, but the opposite, slimy, slippery. Mm-hmm. Plants with mucilages soothe and heal the respiratory tract and stop coughs. The hot water brew that we did with the linden, the hot water brew that we did with the comfrey, is going to get out vitamins and minerals and all kinds of constituents from the plants, but it's not going to get out the mucilage, which is soluble in cold water. So what we're going to do after we pour the liquid off out, of our jar and store that in the refrigerator. We're going to take the linden flowers or the comfrey leaves that are left in the jar and we're going to fill the jar halfway full with cold water and then pour the herb and that cold water into a saucepan, light a fire, bring it up to a boil, turn the fire off, put a lid on it and let it steep four to six hours. Okay. You will see when you strain that second brew that it is much more slippery than the other brew. You can mix the two brews together. First, have been drinking the first brew already, and that's just fine. You can drink them separately. The second one that's more slippery, if that slipperiness is a problem, heat it up. It won't seem so slippery when it's hot and add a little bit of honey to it. So now we have three herbs that are really powerful in healing to the lungs, the respiratory tract, and help to counter colds. Mullen, especially in the form of mullen milk, taken hot with honey and milk, comfrey leaf infusion, and especially the rebrew, and linden flower infusion, and especially the rebrew. Of the remaining herbs that I drink on a regular basis, red clover is also known to be a primary healer for the lungs. So you certainly don't have to include red clover in your rotation. But I like to have several herbs to rotate through so that I don't get bored of them. So if there's always linden in your refrigerator to drink, and then you're rotating through the other herbs, the mullen, the comfrey, and the red clover, this gives you a lot of interest and a lot of ways to help your daughter overcome her chronic cough. Awesome. Any questions? 
Thank you so much. You're welcome. Um, can I ask you a quick question about gathering roots as well? Yes. Where do you live? Um, I live in Indiana. Okay. And I I try to gather from we, – we have a few acres that we live on, and um, there's quite a few places around where um, I can gather from. But roots are new for me. I've not really done much with gathering roots. This is the first year I've I, I've attempted it, and it, and it seems like most of the recommendation is like a three-year route for medicinal purposes. And I guess my question is, how do you know if it's a three-year route? Can you just assume that if it's in the wild it's, and it's flowering and it seems like it's a mature plant that it's probably three years? Is that a poor assumption to make? I guess I just feel a little unsure about the roots. Okay, let's start here. In general, when we're harvesting roots for medicine, we want to harvest them when there's no top growth. Okay. There's certainly exceptions. We can harvest dandelion root anytime. But for instance, we wouldn't want to harvest burdock root when it was flowering. Right. M- most people consider the flower to be all the stuff out of the root being put up into the air, into the flower. And then that flower has to die, and then the green part has to die back, and then the root is like charged up again so that there's kind Mm -hmm. of a flow of nutrition and energy going from the root in the winter up into the flower, spring, summer, fall, and then circulating back down into the root in the wintertime. Uh-huh. That makes sense. Some plants are annuals. They live for one year or less. Some plants are biennials. They live for two years or less. And some plants are perennials, and they live for three years or more. You couldn't harvest a three-year-old root of an annual. Such a thing does not exist. You could not harvest the three-year-old root of a biennial. Such a thing does not exist. If we're going to harvest the root of an annual, and there are few annual roots that are used, we generally want to do it as soon as it is fully formed, but before the plant has flowered. And that, of course, is because we can't wait until after the plant has flowered, because since it's an annual, once the plant has flowered, it's dead. Mm-hmm. With a biennial, we want to let the plant grow for one full year and then to harvest the root at the end of that full year of growth, whether that is late in the year, early winter, or early the next year, late spring. Um, either one of those times is quite fine. We would not want to harvest the roots of a two-year-old biennial because that plant would have flowered and then there is literally nothing left in the root at all. From the garden, an example of a biennial in the garden is carrot. Mm-hmm. You harvest carrots at the end of the first year of growth or let them overwinter and harvest them the next spring. But if we let the summer come and the carrots make flowers, then there is, if we dig that root up, we find it's just a woody stick. Mm-hmm. Some, some perennials live only for three years. Other perennials live longer. 
than when I first started studying herbal medicine. In the mid-1960s, it was very well known and understood that you didn't even bother with the ginseng root unless it was at least 12 years old. Hmm. By the mid-70s, everyone agreed, and it was very well known, that ginseng roots had to be at least 10 years old. By the mid-80s, it was the standard that any ginseng root that was for sale had to be at least seven years old. By the 90s, the norm was that ginseng roots had to be five years old or they really weren't even worth looking at. Hmm. Nowadays, many ginseng roots that are sold are three years old. So three years old for a long-lived perennial is the bare minimum. A ginseng root a hundred years old is worth more than its weight in gold in China. Mm-hmm. How do we know how old the root is? We need to know if the plant's an annual, a biennial, or a perennial. And we need to know is it a short-lived perennial or a long-lived perennial. With the first choices, an annual, a biennial, or a short-lived perennial, there's not too many fingers that we need to count up to one, two, or three. With a long-lived perennial, there are ways by looking at the root to tell how old it is. For instance, poke roots tend to have multiple stalks arise from them. And the older the poke root, the more stalks will be coming out of it. Also, with long-lived perennials, the roots tend to get bigger and bigger and bigger. With ginseng, although the root does get bigger, it doesn't get that much bigger, but a neck is formed where the leaf comes out each year. And so you can literally count the leaf scars on the neck of the ginseng and know exactly how old it is. That's it sounds like I need to do a, a little research on the plants I'm going to dig up before I exactly. decide if I think they're... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it's not okay. one size fits all, eh? Right. You really do need to know the individual plants that you're working with. And also, my native teachers tell me that before I dig up a root, <clears throat> I must uh, talk to the plant, and I must understand that I am giving death to a plant just as though I were drawing a knife and cutting the throat of an animal. I am giving death mm-hmm. something, and that is all right. We live through the giveaway of other lives, but that we should do it with honor and respect, and that we should at least go to the plant beforehand and say, I want to dig you for medicine. Would you make yourself ready? That makes very good sense. Thanks for your question. Well, thank you very much. Good night now. Green blessing. Good night. Green blessing. Uh, Christina emailed in, and she said that she found your article on Kundalini, and she was very interested in it and wanted to know if you could talk more about um, raising Kundalini um, and what, how she can learn more about doing that. Okay, let's start by um, 
explaining a little bit what we're talking about here because um, I don't want to assume that all the listeners know what Kundalini is. And I actually find it extremely interesting. The word kund is a Sanskrit word. It is usually spelled K-U-N-D, kund. And it is indeed the um, root word for country, because that K and that C sound can be transliterated. It's both K, so it can be a C or a K. And in country, of course, the D sound is transliterated as a T, which we have in Dong Kwai or Tong Kwai. It's a, a kind of a explosive, frictive sound there. So we also have that in a great many of our words that have to do with stability, with country, with core, with corn. A very important and deep root word. So kundalini is this core energy that moves in the body. It is a little different from, say, the generalized energy, which in yoga we call prana, and which is in the breath. So when we do breath exercises, we do pranayama. And, of course, pranayama, because it is moving the energy in the body, can help with our work with kundalini, although it's not exactly the same energy. Prana is the equivalent of chi. And when we're sitting zazen, or when we're working with tai chi, or chi kung, then we are working with the same kind of life force energy, chi. And we experience it in our breath, but we also experience it as more of a, 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 if I could say, a solid kind of movement, um, a real actual thing. Like in Qigong, we really feel ourselves moving through the Qi as though it were dark matter or dark energy. You know, the big new thing in um, physics and astronomy is the realization that um, we've been light chauvinists, and most of the universe is light. It's not light energy, it's dark energy and dark matter. So I think of chi as, as moving through that dark matter that we can't see, but that we can certainly experience. And this, too, doing qigong, learning tai chi, working with chi, can also really help in working with kundalini. Kundalini is seen as being a powerful energy that lives in the kund. And I think you can figure out for yourself, giving my, given my explanation, exactly what the kund is. Girls have a kund, but boys don't. And since boys don't have a kund, then their kundalini has to live in the base of their spine. Now, the base of the spine, of course, is where the kund is in a girl and a woman. So it works out to be about the same, but it is kundalini. Kundalini can be awoken, and Kundalini can move up the spine. There's quite an incredible book called Autobiography of a Yogi. It's been in print a great many years. I know I read it in the early 70s, and I believe a new edition has just come out in the past 10 years, um, probably as a kind of anniversary edition. But it is um, the only complete 
accurate, full, and detailed description that I know of in the English language of what happens when your kundalini is awakened and rises up through your spine. And it was reading this book as a young woman that then informed my later work for me to realize that while men have to have practices in order to awaken and help the kundalini to arise, women don't. Women have menopause, and menopause itself wakens the kundalini and moves the kundalini up through the spine. I hope that this has answered your question. Jessica says, I met you at the Montana Herb Gathering. I couldn't stop crying upon meeting you. I was filled with abundant joy and gratitude for the knowledge you are passing on to us. When I returned home, I showed my mother your book, and she asked me to read it and was called by Dandelion to read her chapters. My mother called me the next day to say she wept through most of the reading and was inspired by Dandelion to befriend her and get to know our most abundant and looked-over friend. She's dedicated the next year to Dandelion and has been drinking and eating Dandelions every day since. Because of this, she's been able to stop taking prescribed diuretics and has felt a surge of energy from the green allies surrounding her. From the deepest of our hearts, thank you for opening our hearts and sharing your wisdom. I am still young, but will be a wise old crone sharing what I learn as time passes. So oh, she didn't have a question there. Thank you for Just reading me. that. That that really brings such a, a great nice email about your green herbal healing wise. I know it's yes. not your best selling book, but it is a book that people really really love when they find it. Yes, and it was the first book out in which the plants actually speak out loud to you. So it, yeah. in a way, it the ball rolling on plant spirit medicine and and shamanic herbalism. Mm-hmm. Which is absolutely which talked about at the very beginning of the show. How it, how being a shamanic herbalist is a little different than just being an herbalist. Mm-hmm. So the next person says, I posted about. Well, let me just double check to make sure there's not somebody with a question. Okay. Uh, let's see here. I posted about trying to get pregnant. I'm 30, and I got my tubes tied at 20, which they tied and burned. In 2001, I had an ablation. Well, in 2011, I got married, and my husband and I want to have a child, but we don't know if it can happen. The reversal is so high, and we want to conceive naturally. I've heard about herbs and herbal treatments, but I'm unsure. I recently purchased red clover tea bags and the capsules, but having started taking them yet, I'm a believer that miracles happen. What suggestion would you recommend, or do I need to, or accept that it isn't possible? Accept, oh, I need to accept that it isn't possible. That's the end of that. Okay. I agree that miracles are always possible. And I don't think that we ever have to accept that anything is impossible. But certainly you know, as I know from what you've said, that that it is going to take a miracle 
if we were just talking about a woman who had had her tubes tied and had had her tubes tied recently, well, actually we'd say it would just take a minor miracle for that to happen. But the longer it's been since your tubes were tied, and not just tied but burned, um, and we all know what this scar tissue from burn looks like, the more difficult it is for the egg to find a way into the uterus. And this is our goal here. How can your egg get into your uterus? Well, I'm sure that you, like I, and like many listeners, are saying, well, one way is for um, a doctor to take a large bore needle and to harvest eggs that have been ripened by hormone shots um, and to uh, then get some of your husband's sperm and fertilize them and then implant them in your uterus, kind of go the long way around. So, granted, that's not strictly speaking natural. On the other hand, it's not terribly unnatural, given that you made a very major decision early in your life to basically never have children. And then the ablation. Um, You know, we're not really sure at this point exactly how much that tissue can regrow. And there are various kinds of ablation, some done with hot water, some done with lasers, and so on. And various kinds of ablations have um, different ability for the endometrial tissue to regrow. You don't mention whether or not you're having a normal menstrual period on a regular cycle at this point. So that would certainly be one of the absolute prerequisites to getting pregnant, and if for some reason you are not cycling, then I I would think that working with Vitex Berry Tincture as much as four dropperfuls four times a day, and you can start with a dropperful twice a day and increase increase the dose as you need be, can help. Um, Then, and only then, once I got my cycle regular and fairly normalized, would I consider using red clover. And I would never use red clover in capsules, and I would rarely to never use red clover tincture. What I use is red clover infusion, using one ounce of red clover blossoms. Not the herb, and not the blossoms and the herb, but the blossoms themselves. One ounce of dried red clover blossoms in a quart jar. That jar filled to the top of the boiling water. The herb then stirred into the water. The red clover will absorb a great quantity of water, and you'll have to add more boiling water to the jar, then putting a lid on it tightly and allowing that to steep for at least four hours. I usually let mine steep overnight. It wouldn't hurt, you know, to put your intention into that infusion when you're making it, when you're pouring the boiling water into the jar, envisioning that stream of boiling water moving through the area that is burned in your fallopian tube and opening it up so that an egg can get through there if that's the miracle that we want. Red clover infusion stays good in the refrigerator for several days. And yes, your husband can drink it as well as you. I wouldn't drink it every day. I think three quarts a week is a reasonable amount to drink. And I would probably also look at my diet 
Does my diet contain enough animal fat? I find that women who want to get pregnant, when they raise the amount of animal fat in their diet, whether that's from meat itself or from fish, eggs, whole fat dairy products, that, in fact, animal fat at every single meal is almost as helpful as red clover infusion in terms of helping women to get pregnant. So I hope that uh, these preliminary suggestions are of use to you. Let us know how it goes. We're interested. Green blessing. Thank you. So the next question here is from Diana, and she says, I travel for a living and forage wild edibles as I go. I have one hardcover book as a reference, but surf the net to get info on wild edibles. I've read that the wild sunflower is edible, that the flower buds can be boiled and taste like artichokes. I used my best judgment and foraged in an area that appeared pollutant-free. I tried the flower bud with green leaves on it and then without, still bitter. It makes me wonder if I'm mistaken. Is it only the large heads of variety that's edible as a boiled flower bud? Or maybe I would really appreciate your help. I'm sharing info with others and have a wild edible blog that I created. If you can help, I really appreciate it. All right. Let's start with some basics. I have found through my teaching of over 40 years that one of the best ways for people to learn about plants is to learn about plant families. And I want to give a little thank you very much to um, Mr. Appel for his book, Botany in a Day. You can find it at thewisewomanbookshop.com. Botany in a Day helps you identify plants by their family, helps you learn about the families. One of the largest of the families of flowering plants is the Asteraceae, the Aster family. And these are the plants that are coming on strong now. From the middle of August right on through, we're going to see asters, goldenrods, all kinds of plants in the Asteraceae family. It's an enormous family, and it includes things as diverse as echinacea, chamomile, lettuce, artichoke, burdock, sunflowers, daisies, and lots and lots and lots of other plants, including my namesake, black eyed Susan. What do all these plants have in common? They have in common that their flowers are actually composed of a great many smaller flowers. If you imagine a large sunflower, and you will see the kind of brown or dark center with the golden rays coming out from it. Each one of those golden rays is actually a flower. They're called ray flowers. And in the sunflower, the ray flowers are sterile. And if you look closely at the center of the sunflower, you will see that those are actually little flowers. And that spreading across the face of the sunflower, those flowers open in a wave, each one being able to be fertilized and to give rise to a sunflower seed. So amazing. Some plants 
in the Asteraceae family, like dandelion and chicory, don't have flowers with that strong center. Flowers with the strong center, of course, would include echinacea and black-eyed Susans and daisies, and a great many different wild asters as well that have that yellow center and then rays of different colors. But dandelion and chicory, burdock and artichoke and lettuce have ray flowers without the central disc. And then, of course, there's chamomile, feverfew, and tansy, which are also all in this family, and goldenrod as well, which have just disc flowers. So they look kind of like mm, little fists or little knobs, almost like the center of that sunflower, but without the rays coming out of it. Now, at this point, we don't know of any plants in this family that are poisonous. I say this with a little bit of hesitation because there is a plant in the family that killed Abraham Lincoln's mother. And it's in the genus Eupatorium. Our genus Eupatorium has some very famous um, medicinal plants, and this is in the family Asteraceae, the family we're talking about. And that's Eupatorium purpurea, which is Joe Pieweed, also known as gravel root. Eupatorium perfoliatum, bone set, a very important plant. And then Eupatorium rugosum. Previous name was Eupatorium urticafolia, and many people do indeed confuse it with nettle because until it flowers, it looks quite a lot like nettle. When it flowers, it has a, um, flowers at about knee high to mid thigh high, with kind of ray white ray flowers, small but in great clusters. So these great clusters of flowers. There's a beautiful plant uh, blooming right now called Queen of the Meadow, which gets 8 to 10 feet tall. And again, is um, a Eupatorium. It's in the genus Eupatorium in the Asteraceae family. And it's like a cloud of pink on top of this plant. Well, it flowers, one of the reasons that it's called Queen of the Meadow, so tall and so magnificent. So the Eupatorium rugosum, the white snake root, contains an alkaloid that can do severe damage to the nervous system. However, if you were to eat the plant, you would be able to clear this alkaloid from your body. Many plants contain alkaloids. Coffee contains an alkaloid, for instance, and we are able to clear them out of our bodies. Um, but if your family cow eats this plant, your cow excretes the alkaloid in its milk. And then if you drink that milk, or more especially, if you take the milk and you skim it and retain the butter fat, which is where this alkaloid is going to be, and then eat that butter, you are going to be getting huge amounts of this alkaloid. It takes a while. It's not like you eat some butter and you don't wake up the next morning. You have to continue drinking the milk and eating the butter and the cheese and so on for a year or more in order to get a lethal dose of it. And meanwhile, the cow is just fine. But we're not going to eat white snake root anyhow, and this is one of the reasons we started bulking milk, so that if a cow does eat it, and the goats don't, we have watched them, believe me, if a cow does eat little white snake root, her milk is mixed in with other cow's milk, and there's not enough in there to harm any of us at all. So that's it. All the plants in this family 
are considered safe to eat. That doesn't mean they taste good. Now, you as a wild food person should already know that edible and delicious are not necessarily on the same side of the spectrum. What else is in this family did we say? Burdock. Have you ever tasted burdock leaves? Whoo! Those taste plenty bitter. Dandelion is real bitter for some people. Chicory is another step up better from that. We mentioned that tansy is in this family, and I certainly wouldn't want to eat tansy, although there's kind of custard in England called a tansy, which is indeed flavored with it. Wormwood, all of the Artemisia genus, is also in the Asteraceae family, and wormwood is considered one of the most bitter plants in the world. Golden rots are also in the A, in the Asteraceae family, as is Ambrosia artemisifolia, also known as ragweed. Now, the goldenrods don't produce uh, wind-blown pollen, so you can't be allergic to them, but the ragweed certainly does. So what am I saying? I am saying that the fact that you tried to eat these sunflower buds and they tasted bitter doesn't mean you were wrong, nor does it mean they weren't edible. What I would do is to pour boiling water over them and let them sit in the boiling water a few minutes and then drain that water off and then pour more boiling water on them and continue draining it off just like I would do with poke shoots or dandelion leaves until I have gotten rid of the bitter principle there and then give them a try for eating them. As I said, artichoke is in this family and it is the flower bud of the artichoke that we are eating, but note that you don't just take an artichoke and pop it in your mouth. As a matter of fact, you just scrape with your teeth a little bit off of, that's the bract, it's not really a petal of the artichoke, and the part inside are those ray flowers. They're going to come up and they're going to be purple, they're going to be those rays sticking out of there. So I would think that I would want to harvest the sunflower buds when they are tightly closed. I would want to pour boiling water over them two or three or even four times until they started to taste bland. Then I would put them in boiling water and cook them for a while. And then I would pull the bracts off one by one and see if there was an edible part at the base of that. I hope this has been of some help to you, Green Blessings, on your journeys. You Okay, so I'm just, um, we didn't, Susan wasn't able to call in unless one of these callers that are here now are her. So let's uh, see in the 818, is this Susan? Hello? No, I believe um, it's not her. And then we'll just uh, try this other number and see if Susan is here. Is this you, Susan, in the 801? No. And we did have one more 845 number. I just want to check and make sure that, um, let's see. Is this you in the 845, Susan? No. Okay. Well, <clears throat> it does, however, look like our guest is here. So, hello, Anne. How are you this evening? Hi, thank you. I'm fine. We've been enjoying extremely hot weather here in Arizona. It's been beautiful. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'll see, huh? <laughs> is that, How is uh, it over there? 
Um, I live in Eugene, Oregon, and it has been a very warm spring leading up to this point, but now we have some rain all week, so it's cooling down quite a bit, but it's been, uh, things are growing here like crazy. It's uh, a very, like things blooming like three weeks ahead of time and, you know. Wow. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, I know it's, uh, it's been too hot for anything and no rain so it's pretty pretty much desert out here but it's still beautiful we've had lots of flowers yeah well um tonight so this has never happened before but susan wasn't able to get through on the show and oh no um, i know isn't it so weird the last time we had you on you didn't make it through i didn't make it so that was actually a recording of her um from a show done in 2013 that we had on here and um I don't know what's going on with Susan but we'll just uh hope that everything's okay with her and it's just the issue with her phone I'm hoping oh, um um but I can go ahead and um interview you and ask the questions you wrote in if you'd like and introduce you to the guests and or if you prefer you we can reschedule you again it's up to you Oh um geez. Uh, no, maybe let's just go ahead. <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and read your bio to the guests, and then um, I'll go ahead and ask uh, some questions. Okay. So Reverend Ann Zamp is one of the founders of the Multicultural Peyote Way Church of God in Southeast Arizona. Located in the Aravepa Valley, Reverend Zamp has spent the last 40 years advocating and promoting religious tolerance as well as encouraging members to make ecologically enlightened lifestyle choices. She teaches and advises various organizations and individuals in the United States, Europe, and Asia. Born and raised in Philadelphia to a prominent musical family, she is also an accomplished singer. She attended Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado, and received her BS degree in zoology. She and her husband, Matthew Kent, have three grown children. They trained with master potter Emmanuel Mana Trujillo, who created the nationally acclaimed Mana Pottery, which is on display at the Smithsonian Museum Institute of Native American Art. So welcome to the show, Anne. And thank you. I um, had mentioned at the beginning of the show, like I, it seems like every time I hear of peyote that people say that it has like this masculine presence, and like some people get turned off by that. But just I was came across some peyote flowering peyote this last week, and I was like, wow, it looks so feminine though. And I was it just brought to mind like, is that something that that like the spirit of the peyote depends well, more you know, on. Well, like, I think that, you know, um, in a lot of Native American rituals, they they talk about grandfather peyote, but um, okay. you know, when you grow peyote, like you said, it has this beautiful pink, very feminine flower. It's round. It's soft. <laughs> To yeah. my mind, it's very feminine, and uh, I have had spirit walkers here. I had a brother here. I loved him. He he had a collection of plants, and he had the, all of them were named Harvey, Raymond, you know. And um, after a spirit walk, he said, "I've given my peyote the wrong names. They're they're female. I need to rename my peyote." 
So um, I really think you just have to see how you feel about your experience with peyote, but I do feel that most people find a very feminine presence. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and I know that it's, like, cultivated in different ways as well. Like, I've seen um, – I've only seen it growing in, like, containers in people's homes, and, like, I've seen it sometimes growing grafted on top of uh, San Pedro. Um, mm-hmm. But where – you're grown do you grow your own peyote where you live? Yes, we have right, right now we have two greenhouses and we're planning to build another greenhouse. Um the coronavirus kind of put a crimp on things because we did close for March and um April, we're in May now and um we're just going to start letting a few people in here now in May. And we, you know, we count on donations to do this work. And um, so the third greenhouse is kind of on hold. But two years ago, we started Peyote from Seed, and we have a little seed center in our old building we call the Peyote House. And uh, Matthew and I and and, uh, Akbar, the three of us, have been running the church for the past couple of years. We've been transplanting the two-year-olds from their uh, beginner flats into larger planters. Very tedious work because a two-year-old peyote is the the size of a pencil eraser (laughs) with a little tiny carrot root. Mm -hmm. So how old are they when you make medicine out of them? Right. Well, we recommend not harvesting a peyote plant that is smaller than 20 years old. So, I mean, this is a very, very slow-growing plant, a uh, very long maturity. It's kind of like raising a child. Um, so if we don't like cutting anything that's uh, younger than 20 years old. Um, mm. You know, and peyote is an endangered species. It's been harvested um, to near extinction. Um, you know, a lot of that we blame the laws, which make it illegal to grow and um, which limit the, um, how do you say, the um, fusion to federal agents who sell the peyote to members of the Native American church. So the people who really care about peyote aren't the ones who are stewarding the peyote. And I think that's a real problem for peyote. Um, Now, when we started the church in uh, the early 80s, we actually incorporated in 78 and um, became tax-exempt in 79 or 80. But when we incorporated um, in most of the 80s, we got a lot of flack because we were a non-Indian or a multiracial, multi-ethnic peyote church, and we um, and they a lot of people felt that we were encroaching on Native American province. You know, it's a Native American plant; uh, it should be left to them. And um, and so we were really our consciences were pricked, and we thought, well, uh, we agree. Uh, you know, we need to find a way to propagate these plants so that we can distribute plants that we grow and harvest here at the church. And that's been our mission for the past, you know, since the 80s, 30 years. So, um, yeah, we're, yeah. What a beautiful experience. 
to have the medicine grown right there. I mean, that's something that I see. I mean, there's a lot of people where I live that use, like, ayahuasca as a sacrament, and they transport it up from the jungle. And, you know, these are perennial plants that take a long time to grow. And when it's being distributed in the United States, I'm always like – it just seems uh, counterintuitive to like a medicinal experience to not be cultivating, being able to like either cultivate or have something that is very regenerative, like that you are partaking in. So, yeah, that's I I think that that's an important part of like a uh, depth in going into like medicine work, like you're doing. Yeah, and um, and that's the thing, you know, we really encourage people to keep a garden. Now, the law only protects, really, unless you're Native American or a member of the Native American church. Um, Like in Utah, if you're a member of the Native American church, you don't have to be Native American, but um, the legal scene is just a mess. But um, in Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, Colorado, and Oregon, if you're a bona fide religious uh, use clause is there, that if you are a bona fide um, peyotist, you can grow peyote in your home with a declaration of religious belief. And so we encourage people in those five states to plant and grow their own peyote, which is, Mm. and the irony with this is that uh, it's illegal to buy or sell peyote. So when people want to have peyote to grow, they have to go, you know, they have to contact Germany or Australia or, you know, or um, England. I, there was a site in England for a long time that was selling peyote plants. And um, so you have to go out of the country to buy the seeds or the plants to grow them in the United States. And where so, is it native? It's native to the United States, but is it native to other areas of the world as well? It is very distinct. It's a, it grows in South Texas, but mostly it grows in northern Mexico. So there's just this little area, a little corridor where peyote grows naturally. It doesn't grow anywhere else in the world unless you plant it and uh and there are a lot of places where the environment is friendly and peyote could be grown. And even the not-so-friendly environments with a little protection, you know, um, like with our peyote seeds, we, you know, I tried for years to grow peyote from seed, and I had such a hard time because Arizona sun is very bright, and it was just too bright for the peyote. But we got artificial lights, and we have been growing them under artificial lights. So, you know, you can do that anywhere in the world, and you can be growing peyote. And then, like I said, there's a lot of environments where um, during the summer months it's going to be friendly for the peyote, and you can move them indoors and outdoors. Or you can do like us, and we have greenhouses because our winters are too cold. Hmm. Yeah. Right. We're at 4,000 feet. You've really been like working it out to learn how to cultivate, and yeah, it's worth it to grow your own medicine, though. It's really um, uh, very challenging, but um, I know there's some Facebook people, there's organizations, and and I don't want to promote Facebook because I, you know, we don't use it. Uh, <laughs> um, but I know that there are groups 
and there are people that have a lot of information that can share. And then a lot of people get in touch with me through the website if they have a question. Yeah, so do you want to go ahead and tell us more about the church and where it's located and what your your mission is beyond um, cultivating? Right. Well, you know, I, we have a trifold mission, and uh, we're located in southeast Arizona, and it's uh, 4,000 feet, like I said. We have 160 acres of land in the Aravipa wilderness. Um, it's it's really a pretty nice situation because even though we are surrounded by ranch land, we're also right up against Coronado National Forest. So there's there's a lot of um, – it's a very sacred space. Lots of beautiful mountains all around us, and um, and right now we just have Arizona poppies everywhere blooming. So um, and then our mission is we have it's trifold, and and I list the growing the peyote last, which now I think for us growing the peyote is our prom is the most prominent part of our mission. But it's also very important for us to introduce seekers to the Holy Spirit through the sacramental use of the Holy Sacrament of Peyote. And to that purpose, that's why we sustain this 160 acres. One of the things Emmanuel said when we were organizing the church that he that he realized, um, he and another group uh, purchased this land in 1971, and then Matthew and I paid the land off, but... Um, we showed up in 77, and the church, he, he wasn't able to get the the peyote church started until we came. Before that, um, he was just, he just had peyote, you know, <laughs> he just had peyote, and he would share it with people who came through. Um, but uh, I don't know where I was going with that. Um, um you were saying that he had the peyote and he would just give it to people. So I'm curious, since it takes so long to grow, and like what, like a a standard dose, like how much is somebody con- consuming at one time when they ingest the peyote, and how it, right. and like how it's like prepared, and like what it, what kind of what kind of substance you're ingesting when you take it. Well. Um... It actually takes quite a lot. And so most of the people who keep gardens, you know, they, they still come here for the spirit walk because we use uh, 21 grams of powdered peyote. Wow. Mm-hmm. Which that's is, a big you depth. know, that's a lot of, you know, that's between 10 and 15 um, pretty good-sized peyote plants. Not very large. I mean, peyote doesn't get very large, but, um, you know, a, a 20-year-old peyote plant is maybe an inch and a half across um, and then the very large ones maybe 50 or 60 years old and they you know maybe as large as three to four inches across uh, they get a lot bigger when they're grafted but anyway uh, yeah so you harvest um, you know 10 to 15 peyote tops you leave the root in the ground always so it will grow back and we slice and dry it uh, in a dehydrator. And then when someone is ready for a spirit walk, we weigh and powder out the 21 grams. And then I just pour boiling water over it and stir it and let it soak up that water, and it becomes a very potent drink. (laughs) 
Is it hard to drink, or is it a something? It is. Uh, you said you were familiar with ayahuasca, and um, which I would call a sweet bitter in my head. Um, Peyote is an alkaline bitter, bitter, um, but there. <laughs> But but I know peyote and ayahuasca both, and San Pedro uh, all share that that bitterness and um, that the alkalinity. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to get down. We actually encourage people to drink the tea very slowly, uh, over a period of several hours, sipping very slowly because it's also very nauseating, and you don't want to lose it, and it does take a lot. So so it's kind of you just take a sip, you see how your stomach's doing. We actually encourage waiting 20 minutes, take another sip, let your t- stomach settle, um, and just keep working on it until you just can't drink anymore. And then, um, and then usually we just wait a little longer, and then you, after maybe an hour you take a sip. So it's a, it's a pretty um, labor-intensive um, just to get it in you. And so the whole time, the beauty is, you know, we prepare these spirit walk areas, which are, you know, very beautiful. They're um, outdoors. Uh, there's We usually put a canopy up so that people can be out of the sun because we usually start at 5 in the afternoon, and during the summer the sun doesn't always set until, you know, 7 or 8 o'clock. So, so we have the canopy giving the pay the spirit walker some shade and um and they sit there's a fire uh laid we t- encourage them not to light the fire till it gets dark and there's firewood and they have a chair and some sleeping bags and um little hand warmers uh in case they get cold and you just you just spend the night enjoying this beautiful scenery and while you're drinking the tea and then usually between 1 and 2 o'clock you have enough of the sacrament in you that you're starting to have a more profound experience um but i want to say that a lot of people have expectations and and um have desires of what they want this experience to do for them and you know peyote just isn't it isn't going to do that. Peyote does what it does. And what I find it does best is it awakens your awareness. You know, after a spirit walk, you walk much more mindfully. Uh, you're much more attentive to how you treat other people. You you think more before you say things that might be hurtful or unkind. And 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 this ha- this just happens. But... Did you have, you know, did you go to other solar systems? Did you meet other entities? Maybe not. Um, that's where I say a lot of people have expectations, and they and um, or or what often happens is if you're if you're just in a hurry and you're drinking the tea really fast, uh, which is still probably slow, you know, but it's fast in my mind then you will uh, throw up and it's really, unless you've ha- held it down for several hours, you do lose a lot when you throw up. So, uh, so it's is very challenging. Like, like, is like a solo thing? Like there's not, it's not like a ceremony done with several people. It's just the one person on their own doing the spirit walk. That's right. We practice a solitary spirit walk. 
uh, we feel it's much more profound for a person if they're not dealing with other people's issues, you know, and you're not distracted, you know, because I think sometimes uh, a ceremony with other people can be kind of an entertainment and a distraction. And even if you're just with another person, I know I used to take a lot of spirit walks with my partner, church president, Matthew Kent, and, um, and I would be distracted by him. And um, I found him so interesting, you know, if he had a spiritual thought or, a revelation and he would say something to me, I would be distracted and I would be paying more attention to what he was saying. And um, so for the most part, most of the people who take spirit walks alone are really happy they did. And I know there can be fear because you are outside and we do live close to nature. But, uh, you know, as a Philadelphia girl, I always still felt quite safe with my fire most animals are pretty scared of the fire and they're not going to come in. And, and we haven't had any, knock on wood, we haven't had anybody attacked, you know, out there. They, It's always just a really beautiful, quiet night and uh, the sounds are amazing. You know, the, the owls, we have some owls that have been hooting beautifully every night and, and the coyote song is, is very beautiful and uh, and the sky is just quite awesome you know we're not close to any cities there's no city lights interfering with the most beautiful view so, and yeah, you're there like alone. holding the space too like uh making sure that nothing gets in like are you exactly. holding like and we're here and we're here if somebody needs us but for the most part if you can get through it without actually i think a lot of people might regret coming and getting asking for help because they, they can work it out themselves. And a lot of times mm-hmm. suddenly they're in another person's energy field and they realize how much the medicine is affecting them and uh, and they want to be back alone. Mm. Okay. Um, and it, I see that, you know, you call yourself a church and it, it, do you do that more for formality, for uh, legality, or do you actually have like church meetings and traditional, like a traditional church would? Well, there is, you know, some legality to it. And um, a religion is a systemized structure of beliefs. And, um, and so we, and that's, so that's what we did. We created a structure of uh, our beliefs, you know, our, the article of faith number four is to grow and steward the holy sacrament peyote, and um, and we have five or six other articles of faith. We have a um, we have uh, the word of wisdom, which is our which is a dietary guide that uh, Joseph Smith presented to the um, congregants of the Na- of the uh, Latter Day Saint Church. Um, and we embraced it because it was so well written. And uh, Matthew and Emmanuel and I had all become vegetarian actually shortly before we met each other. And um, and we were also just very aware we had all smoked cigarettes, and uh, we gave up the cigarettes too in the past. And and we realized that you know this body is a temple, and we need to keep the temple clean. So um, we didn't want to say um, 
vegetarian. And the wonderful thing about the word of wisdom is uh, it's uh, vegetarian diet is recommended, but meat is also a moderation in all things. Meat should be used in uh, times of winter cold or famine. Herbs are for the the inside and the outside of the body. You know, tobacco is <laughs> for healing. Um, it's it was just really well done, well, well written, and um, and we felt that that would be kind of an opening for other uh, for Mormons at least to start to understand our position in the in the scheme of things, and it actually. Living in a Mormon community, we found that uh, it was an opening. A lot of people, it was a good conversation for a lot of people to think about um, how how did they live the word of wisdom or were they living the word of wisdom? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so... Have you had um, any Mormon participate or... We have had a few, um, you know, a lot of uh, loosely... Based Mormons, people who were Mormon and maybe have strayed a little bit. But you were asking, we don't have regular services because, um, again, we find that peyote works individually. And so um, we make the church available. We set up appointments for people and they come and they fast for 24 hours and we give them a room to stay in while they're fasting. And then... Um, and then the second night, we give them the sacramental tea, and they go to the spirit walk areas they've chosen. Um, and we give them a lot of preparatory discussion before they go out. So it's not like they come and they're waiting around and they get the tea and they go out and what the heck am I supposed to do? But um, we give them a tour, and during the tour, we talk about the wildlife, about rattlesnakes, and um and then uh, we show them the room, and we talk about drinking the tea and um, expectations. Um, the important thing to remember uh, is that we're not going to tell anybody what to believe. You know, we're not. Uh, we don't have a missionary fervor. Uh, if you come to the church with a certain set of beliefs, we're not going to argue with you. We leave that to the peyote because the peyote ultimately is the one that's going to get in there into your soul and um, have the most influence. And actually, you know, I think it most for some people it bolsters what they already believed, and for other people like myself, you go through a lot of changes. You know, uh, I I was born, uh, I was raised a Methodist Christian. I went through college searching um, they were called the Jesus freaks in the 70s and I studied with um, uh, the um, meditation and um, and then I, I actually uh, investigated the Mormon church I was living up in Fort Collins and uh, and then I started dating an atheist so I was all over the board and I think that um, when then when I met the Holy Sacrament, I was really challenged because, first of all, I had this belief in a God, and then I started realizing there was this feminine power that uh, that I had been denying, uh, and that femininity was important, and 
and in my culture, being raised in the 60s and 70s, there was, uh, you know, you didn't have a lot of female doctors, female lawyers. It was mostly male. There was a very male-dominant attitude, and that's what I came to peyote with. And peyote started telling me, no, you know, there's there's this female energy. You have to recognize it. And, and uh, it just changed a lot of the way I look at the cosmos, the universe, and this existence. So, so, so everybody, you know, you come with what you, what you come with, and then the peyote kind of just tweaks it a little bit, not much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it there. Uh, it's a, it's a teacher. It's there to teach you, right? Yeah, exactly. Mhm. Um. So I'm sure that you, I mean, beyond just like when people arrive and, you know, they, you're showing them what to do and the expectations that there's some type of preparation that um, takes place before they even get there. And what is that like? Right. Well, again, we encourage people to at least for a week or two before they come to, uh, to practice um, vegetarian, healthy eating, you know, lots of fresh vegetables and fruits and whole grains and um, to abstain from meat. I know in the ayahuasca, for a lot of ayahuasca groups, they, they talk about a dieta where you don't eat salt and you eat a lot of fish and I'm not sure what all. But um, we, you know, peyote doesn't really care. But we find that if you do, you know, if you do do a little preparation, uh, be more mindful about what you're eating before you come, you definitely uh, gain more from the experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know the ayahuasca diet is very strict, but one of the things I, I love the mushroom sacrament is that it's less less strict and I mean of course like always to have like a a good diet but um yeah that it's not so picky about who it works with and I know you say like some people don't experience anything and that's like pretty common with like the the whole kind of psychedelic experiences that some people uh the sacrament will choose not to um work with but at the same time there's other i mean but there's still a lesson that comes through it seems like oh yeah no doubt (laughs) yeah i think so yeah okay so um it looks like we're coming to the end of the show here and susan always leaves the last minute for the guest uh to leave what they would like the impression of the list oh well, I think that we can, without any sacrament, uh, just embrace the the world, the, this planet, and the more that we get our hands in the dirt and uh, grow think the food we eat or even just the flower that we keep in a window, uh, if you have peyote to grow, but it doesn't have to be peyote, I mean, just to to uh, to get closer to nature, to feel that energy, you know, it, uh, the the plant world is quite mysterious, and we tend to take it for granted. So I I would think that that would be a very good first step towards uh, gaining a new um, awareness of our world and what it can do for us and what we can do for it in return. 
Mm-hmm. And can you tell the listeners also how to get in touch with you, the best way to get in touch with you? Well, I always recommend people get in touch through the website because uh, I have had people call the church, but it's very hard for me to return their calls. And um, if you just get in touch by email, uh, you'll get a response. If you don't get a response the first time, try again. Um, I will get back to you. <laughs> the, the big thing okay, that I'm worried is- about right now, though, is that uh, if we still have time, is just if you're interested in a spirit walk, you really have to get in touch way in advance because this year our calendar was filled up and then the coronavirus shot everything to heck. And uh, so it's it's uh, a little harder to make reservations right now. And so how far in advance do people need to schedule? Well, this year has been scheduled. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, all I'm at this point, all I'm doing is looking for cancellations where I can put somebody in. So I used to say two months in advance, and um, I just think you know you might want to plan a little farther ahead than that. You know, six months to a year in advance. And yeah, it's just so much uh, healing needs. It's like it's. I feel like right now is like a truth serum, and so like so much is coming up for people that they're going to be really seeking this like deep um, wisdom from that you can't really get from other sources. So it's really good work. Mm-hmm. And can you tell the listeners what your website is on the air? It's peyoteway dot org. So P E Y O T E W A Y. And, uh, you know, and again, because we're the only, we're one of the few churches that do this, and now coronavirus, we used to host between six and eight people a weekend, so it's not a lot of people. And now we're thinking of um, toning it down to four to six people a weekend so that we can give everybody that social distancing that they need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, what a strange time, and uh, yeah, I'm very thankful for folks like you that are continuing to do this work and uh, do the spirit walks like this, so thank you so much, and um, yeah, it's so nice to finally connect with you, and I have uh, future hopes of myself taking a journey down to Arizona to to meet y'all, so not sure when that is going to be, but um yeah, love uh, you answering all the questions on here that I was curious about. <laughs> and well, that'd be lovely. And uh, you know, I am so sorry that I missed Susan. Um, yeah, well, bad. hopefully um, we can have you connect with her because you know it's a unique experience to be interviewed by Susan Weed. <laughs> so I believe um, it. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I thank you so much and thanks everyone for holding on tonight and hanging in there with us while Susan is gone and hopefully she will be back next week and we will continue on with blog talk radio. So yes, have a great night and yeah, have a great night. Goodbye. Good night, everyone.